Hello, and welcome to Out West, the official podcast of the Western Governors Association, a bipartisan organization representing the governors of the 22 westernmost states and territories. I'm Jim Ogsbury, Executive Director of WGA. This episode is the third in a series regarding Idaho Governor Brad Little's WGA Chair Initiative, Working Lands, Working Communities. Governor Little's initiative is examining the interdependent relationships between Western communities and resource management entities, as well as the role that local communities play in successful land planning and management processes. In this episode, Troy Timmons, WGA's Director of Federal Relations and Strategic Initiatives, sits down with Carol Acarius, the Executive Officer Emeritus at Coalitions and Collaboratives, a Colorado-based nonprofit she founded to help foster conservation efforts throughout the West. Their conversation addresses post-wildfire restoration challenges and strategies for protecting wildfire-affected communities. We're pleased here to welcome Carol Acarius, who is the Emeritus Director of Coalitions and Collaboratives which is a great group that Western governors have worked with on a number of different issues. Carol is one of the most interesting people I know, but for the people that are watching here, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how on earth did you get involved in and develop such a passion for the restoration needs of wildfire affected communities? Well, I, started working my young adult life in wastewater treatment. And I did that because I was an enviro at heart even back then. And I grew up in New Jersey on Barnegat Bay. And in my young life, I watched the bay go from fairly clean and safe to swim and clam and things like that to being really polluted and having no clamming days and no swimming days. And so at 20 years old, I got a job in a wastewater plant in order to really help clean up my water body. Then I moved to Colorado in 1979 on a ski trip that didn't end. And I started working in wastewater treatment in Summit County. I worked for Breckenridge Sanitation and Frisco Sanitation District. And then my husband and I did something totally crazy and went and farmed in Minnesota for 10 years, did an organic grass-based farm. But we both missed the mountains and missed Colorado. We were never going to be Minnesotans at heart. And so we came back. And just as we came back, there was an advertisement for a new watershed group that actually formed in the Upper South Platte Basin coming out of the Buffalo Creek fire. And so... I became the first executive director for the Upper South Platte Watershed Protection Association, or later renamed the Coalition for the Upper South Platte. And I believe in that idea of place-based groups engaging local citizens and local entities to work together and leverage resources to get work done on the ground. And while we farmed, I did that with the sustainable farming world then coming back here with the watershed group. And so when I started with CUSP, I knew a lot about water. I have an engineering background. I know a lot of biology, know about agriculture. But honestly, I didn't know about forest fires and trees. And I could look at an evergreen of any kind and say, yeah, it's an evergreen tree. But I couldn't tell the fir from a spruce from a pine. 
at that point in time. And now, yes, I'm somehow an accidental expert in wildfires and communities and how communities deal with fire through the cycle of fire. And that's, you know, pre-fire mitigation, during fire and suppression activities, and then especially where I've become kind of a nationally recognized expert is in post-fire recovery for communities. Before we really start to dig into post-fire, let's talk about pre-fire mitigation work. About one out of three Americans lives in the wildland urban interface, the WUI. If I live in one of these areas, one of these WUI areas, what are three things that I should be doing today to reduce the risk of a wildfire just destroying my home? So first things are not the mitigation things in my brain. The first thing is make sure you have adequate insurance. And a lot of people, if you bought your house 20 years ago, and you took out an insurance policy, and you pay your insurance every year, but you don't really pay that much attention to it, and then all of a sudden a wildfire comes through, and you find out that your house, you weren't covered for replacement value, and you were covered at a value similar to what you bought that house at. 20 years ago, all of a sudden people go, my house is gone and my insurance is nowhere near sufficient to cover rebuilding. And so that to me is the first thing people should do is really look at that insurance coverage. Second thing I think they should do right away is think about evacuation planning. You need a go bag, spare underwear, socks, legal documents that you're going to need prescriptions if you take regular medicine. So if you get a go now order, you pick up that bag, you're out the door. You're not wandering around the house picking things out. So I think thinking really strategically about evacuation, how do you get out? Where do you go? Where do you meet other family members? How do you take care of family members that are alone? That to me is the first two things we should be doing. Then we move on to starting to think about mitigation around your home. So there's two pieces of this. One we call home hugging, and that's really looking at things, some of them easy, some of them expensive, but it could be cleaning out your gutters. Not very expensive, but important because embers can fly in a big wildfire two miles Improving roof structure. If, if somebody still lives in a buoy and has an old shingle roof, doing an upgrade to the roof, metal or a new high quality shingles that have high burn resistance. Decks. A lot of times fires start, the deck starts to smolder and the next thing the house goes up. Thinking about if you have a propane tank or firewood close to the house, moving them further away from the house. Those are all home hardening kind of ideas. Then defensible space is cutting trees, limbing up trees around your house, thinning the vegetation. The recommendations are within 10 feet of your house, like no vegetation. Or we have some aspens right outside our bedroom window that we kept, but the 10 feet then moves out from them. So between the edge of that aspen grove, there's 10 feet of no veg gravel. And then we cleared back the bigger trees further out. So the next 30 feet on your lot, you shouldn't have large amounts of trees touching each other. 
And then from 30 to 100 feet, you can have more trees if you have that much lot. But again, you're trimming and thinning out the number of trees so that you don't have a lot of trees touching. And that cuts off the running fire through a canopy of the forest. If you're in an HOA, a lot of times HOAs can do a lot along the roads to help protect everybody, to help protect ingress and egress for evacuation. They can do things along fence lines where, you know, the entire fence line of a subdivision is treated and maybe you have a 30-foot wide fuel brick along the entire fence line that helps slow down and give a chance for the fire to not just keep running right through. So those are sort of the pre-fire things for community members and individuals in the Wui. For the local governments and the utilities in the Wui, I mean, do you have a community wildfire protection plan? Have you updated it at all recently? The community wildfire protection plans came out of the Healthy Forest Restoration Act in 2003, I think that was. And the initial ones, people put something together and talked about, you know, what the resources the fire district had, things like that. But it didn't talk about what the resources the fire district needed to have. It talked about houses. It didn't talk about things like water supplies. Yeah. Recreational values that we care about as community members. So, you know, we encourage local governments, counties, fire districts, towns to really re-up their CWPPs and think of all those things that are important to your community. If I live in a wooey area, how can I get involved in some of those planning processes? Who should I talk to? At this point in time, if you were a citizen living in a wooey area and you look around and go, yeah, if it burns, I could be in some kind of trouble, you know, check with your fire chief, check with your county emergency manager. A lot of times there's a local forest collaborative or a watershed group that's active in this arena. A lot of counties have established wildfire councils that work on these things. So, you know, start talking to folks like that and you'll quickly find out how to get involved. And we all want people to participate. Part of the work has to go in the wildland, has to go out on the national forest, but part of the work has to go in the actual urban interface area. And I think, you know, we say a third of the country lives in a wooey area. I actually think it's more than that because I think we will see more fires that are different in the future being driven by climate change. And we're already seeing that. I think of the Marshall Fire in Colorado this year in December. That's not normally where people go, oh, I live in the wooey. Well, guess what? You actually do. You actually do. Good discussion on the pre-fire mitigation, but even with that, it's still a question of when, not if, a wildfire is going to affect a community in a wooey. So we know that mitigation can help suppression activities. So when a fire is burning, if there's mitigated areas, that gives firefighters a chance to try and stop the fire. But a lot of our large fires anymore are climate weather-driven events when they happen. So you get a spark, you get a 70-mile-an-hour wind. Your defensible space is not a guarantee that your house will not burn, which goes back to why I talk about insurance and evacuation first yeah. <laughs> with people. It's not a guarantee that 
the water supply isn't going to be destroyed for a community that doesn't burn. We have to look at these things and understand that when we have those kind of weather events, and we have more of them nowadays, that, you know, we are still susceptible to fire. You have to have 20% of a landscape treated to even begin to change wildfire behavior. Look across the country. We do not have 20% of the landscape treated. So let's talk about what happens after a fire. And in the immediate aftermath of a wildfire, what are three things that a homeowner should be prepared to deal with? You know, if your house burns due to an electrical fire in your house, you're going to deal with your local insurance agent. And it's probably going to be relatively easy and you're going to get less questions about what you own, what you had, how much it was valued at. But when a thousand homes burn, you're not dealing with a local agent. You're dealing with a corporate person and part of their job is to save the company money. <laughs> and so it becomes even harder to get your clients through. So there's that emotional frustration. Then you have to clean up the property. A lot of the time, a lot of older homes, they have asbestos, they have lead paint. So cleanup can become challenging and problematic. And then you got to try and go through rebuilding, and that can be a problem. Nowadays, I think most local governments, when a lot of houses are lost, they try to make it easier to get through the process of rebuilding. But it still is a process, and it can be frustrating, and it can be hard. But I work even more with people who didn't lose their home, but who happen to live in drainages below wildfires. Following a wildfire, you absolutely will have post-fire flooding off these landscapes. A drainage that maybe before never ran any water or during snowmelt or a big rain, you might see a trickle coming down that drainage, can all of a sudden run a river. And it's not a river of nice, clean water. It is more like a concrete slurry of mud and debris and rocks and trees and anything human that, that happened to have been in the drainage before, stock tanks, propane tanks, train cars that somebody had as a guest cabin, you know, all these things will, <laughs> will float in a big flood. And so we work a lot with local government, county government, utilities, public works departments, and homeowners on doing work to try and mitigate some of the worst effects of the flooding. So with private property owners, there's a great program that the Natural Resources Conservation Service runs, the Emergency Watershed Protection Program, that can come in and help fund a lot of this work. But they need a local sponsor, and that can take time to get a county government or a fire district or someone to sponsor the agreement to do the work. And even then, I tell property owners, we're going to do what we can to help mitigate the impact. But again, there's no guarantee that your house is going to not go away in a flood. There's a new online program called floodfactor.com. I don't know if you've seen it, Troy. If you put in an address, they have a 500-year flood model. And I've looked at it in relation to places that have post-fire flooding. And it could be a 10-year rain event that does it. So a 500-year flood in normal terms comes with a 500-year kind of rain event. All of a sudden, after a fire, a 500-year flood event can come with a 25-year 
return interval rain event. But you can look at that and you can plug an address in. And if you're in that 500-year zone in flood factor and you're below a fire scar, you should be worried. <laughs> you could see those effects just last year with after the Grizzly Fire that took yep. out I-70. Yep. Yep. It wasn't the exactly. fire that took out the, it the was highway not the fire. Was flooding. Grizzly was one of the ones that I consulted the local community on. And the city of Glenwood called me after the fire was contained and said, we're trying to figure out what this fire is going to mean for us. And I pulled up stream stats. I ran it for No Name and Grizzly and said, this is this is what you're going to see come down these drainages. And it's going to take out the highway. It is going to happen. And you know? it did. And it did. <laughs> and that's very steep. It's unstable. There's a lot of sediment already built up in a lot of those channels. And so as soon as the rain hit that fire, it did $100 million plus of damage to I-70. And every time 70 is closed through the canyon, this is multi-million dollar impact the economy from, you know, how many trucks come through there a day. I mean, the whole supply chain interruptions and all. So these things happen. They happen in California. They happen in Oregon. They happen in Montana. They happen in Arizona. They happen here. We know they happen. And you can see that kind of flooding for years after the fire. One of the fires I worked on extensively and where I really learned more about fire than I ever necessarily wanted to know was the Heyman fire burned in 2002 in Colorado. Highway 67 through the Heyman fire wash out three miles of highway six years after the fire. Mm. So it's not just like, oh, if you get through the first year, it's all good. And the other thing with this fire is that people tend to forget about it and lose interest. You know, during the fire, the news is there. Sometimes the president or the vice president flies in and there's photo ops. But that long-term impact does not get all the attention. It just drags on and it's morally challenging for people. Water utilities, they run into, you know, higher costs of treatment because it causes nutrification in reservoirs. It causes high turbidity to impact their water plant. I mean, there's just the rippling effects of fire well beyond the life of the fire, which is part of going back to why we do need to mitigate at a landscape scale. And I am an enviro. I would challenge anyone to question my enviro creds, but at the same time, I'm an enviro who believes we need to be cutting trees. <laughs> Um, our forests are overstocked, they are overgrown, and so we need to be doing mitigation. It doesn't mean wholesale timbering just for timber's sake. It's not logging like we did logging a hundred years ago, but we need to do forest mitigation work. All you have to do is fly out at Denver International Airport. You can still see the Buffalo Creek scar, the Heyman scar, even if you take out and manage those timber resources, the carbon capacity of a thinned forest that is resilient to wildfire is greater than a place Abs like the Hamenburg or the Buffalo And from an ecosystem point of view, these large high-intensity fires, they don't come back. It is wholesale ecosystem change, which is why you can you look at that scar from in the sky and it's like, 
it's decades. You know, Buffalo Creek burned in 1996. Right. And it's still just now like a grassland area, and it should have been a forest. So we see wholesale conversion of these ecosystems. And from a carbon standpoint at this point in time, Colorado's forests have become net emitters, which is hard to imagine. Forests are supposed to sequester carbon. But because of fire, because of insect and disease, and because we are losing these trees, and the trees that are burned in a fire continue to give off carbon for decades. They're dead, but they continue to rot and give back off their carbon into the atmosphere. We have been working really actively to try and look at how do we do reforestation using carbon markets. It's harder than it sounds. (laughs) How do we use carbon markets to do fuel reduction work using very ecological prescriptions to do forest restoration, to take forests back and reset them to a more resilient landscape? And I think in Hopefully this year we will actually have an avoided wildfire carbon protocol that will allow us to do fuel mitigation and have some carbon credits associated with it. Well, to address the kind of risk that are out there is going to take some nonlinear thinking, some really innovative approaches, because the way we've been doing things it's not working. It's not, <laughs> it's not working. I mean, I remember the Forest Service was being appealed on a project on the Pike National Forest. And I, I will not say the name of the Enviro group that was appealing them at the time, but I went to the appeal on behalf of the Forest Service. And I said to my Enviro colleague, you know, when this burns, then it's gone. And it burned in the payment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so this relatively small project that got appealed, by the time the appeal was done, the Hayman had burned, and it was a moot point, and there's no trees there anymore. Unfortunately, I have heard that exact same scenario all across western states. And with a lot of these overly dense forests, when we do mitigation right, it's actually better for wildlife, because damn few animals eat pine bark. You know, <laughs> if that's the you know, only thing. If the, and if that's the only thing, if it's so dense that that's all that's there, there's no ground grasses, there's no ground shrubs, that you know, there's not good habitat. And there's good science to support that. Now, we have to watch timing of activities at times. So if we have certain times for nesting birds, for example, you don't want to go in and be cutting trees while you have the babies in their nest. But once they fledge and go away, then you can go in. Lynx habitat, you've got to watch out timing of projects where we know it's lynx habitat. But it doesn't mean we can't do this work or that we shouldn't do this work. We need to do this work. Well, we've kind of drifted off, but that's, that's <laughs> quite okay. Because yeah, it's, it's good. I have a habit of doing that, Troy. No, no, it's <laughs> awesome. And we have touched on one of the resources that's available to communities after a wildfire, the NRCS's Emergency Watershed Protection Program. What are some of the other resources or programs that people should be looking at? So the Forest Um, Service or BLM, if there's a 
federal nexus, which most of our forested fires in the West have a federal nexus to the Forest Service. They do a burned area emergency response analysis, or BEAR, B-A-E-R, analysis. The BEAR team's mandate is to protect resource values on the forest itself. They do some analysis on hydrology and hydraulic changes coming out of the fires, but their mission, their purpose through BEAR is not to mitigate flooding downstream off the forest, and that's a misnomer that communities often have at first. But they do provide good information, and so the information is valuable for communities to start to understand what kind of changes they'll see in flows. I mentioned USGS, they do debris flow modeling, and that can be really valuable. And as far as I know, at this point in time, they do them pretty much on every major wildfire. Another agency that comes into play at the national level is FEMA, obviously. They are not an agency that's easy to work with for individual citizens, though a lot of times individual citizens end up receiving funding from them when there's enough damages to the private side. So enough homes burned, FEMA will actually come in and help fund some of the property cleanups, and sometimes some rebuilding costs can be captured through a FEMA grant. But it is a little harder program. But FEMA will work with the local government agencies on funding to help with public costs associated. The Small Business Administration is sort of the last one of the federal agencies, and they come in and will help fund low-interest or no-interest business loans and things like that to businesses that can show they were directly impacted by the fire or the aftermath of the fire. In some parts of the country, the Army Corps of Engineers, through their Silver Jackets teams, also are pretty active. Silver Jackets are really active in, like, Washington and Oregon. Then state agencies come into play after big fires. So here in Colorado, the Colorado Water Conservation Board, Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, the Department of Homeland Security through their Homeland Security and Emergency Management Division. In California, CAL FIRE comes into play even after the fire to help with recovery efforts. So there's a lot of those kind of resources. Getting plugged into them for an individual property owner can be a little bit hard and challenging, but I would start with your county government or your town government. County emergency managers usually are part and parcel of the recovery process, and they're normally the best people to start talking to initially. There are a lot of nonprofits. So with property cleanup, there's a lot of volunteers for disaster recovery groups and they'll come out and help property owners with the initial cleanup of burned properties. And they're place-based, they're part of your community, they live there, and they care. And, and they help leverage resources to get these grant dollars in and onto the ground so that it's not all on the property owner's back. What could states and what could the federal government be doing better to assist communities that are affected by a wildfire? I have tremendous friendships and great respect for most of my federal and state colleagues. They are good people trying to do good work, but a lot of times there's myriad laws, rules, regulations that they have to 
they have to color in the box and they have a hard time coloring outside the box. At the Fed level, I would really like to see a fire disaster declaration yield a post-fire flood hold under that declaration. So disasters are declared under the Stafford Act. That's what controls FEMA and all these things. And the way the disaster works, if you have a fire, the day the fire is contained, that's it. That's what's covered under that disaster declaration. But we know that fire is going to have at least three to five years worth of significant flooding associated with it. Each one of those floods has to make a new disaster level to get a new disaster declaration. So I think that's one thing at the federal level that I would love to see happen. But, you know, the federal agency could help develop a, like a navigator program. So when a community has a fire, if this is their first rodeo, they don't know what questions even to ask. A whole lot of people show up. They throw a whole lot of new acronyms at them. And the community people, including the elected officials and the staff of these communities, are going like deer in the headlights. And so, you know, the idea of the navigator program, which is getting kicked around, it's getting some momentum with leadership. That idea Mm -hmm. is that you get people who've been there, you get a county commissioner who's had a fire in the past to come talk to the county commissioners. You get a person like me to show up and and talk about what to expect and what can you do and what's the order you should be doing and what are the questions you should be asking. And if you're hiring consultants, what are the questions you want to ask consultants who you're going to hire to help you with this work? That would be really valuable for most communities. That's one of the things we've been working on through the Wildland Fire Leadership Council. And it feels like we've been talking about that for far too long. You know, I talk about the continuum of fire, the pre-fire issues, the during fire, and the post-fire. And in this continuum of fire, for decades, most of the energy, most of the money, most of everything has gone to the fire, to the suppression side. I think if you went back 20 or 30 years when fires burned, there was, you know, the local firefighters, they were over here doing their thing, and the forest service was over here doing its thing, and the state people were over here doing their thing. And over the years, they really integrated the incident management into everybody's there, and nobody's tracking dollars during. Afterwards, they try and sort out who spent what and who needs to get paid what and all. But they really integrated the management of the fire in a way that we now need to integrate the management of pre-fire work and we need to integrate the management of post-fire work. And I think we can do this. I believe that. But it it takes time and it's not easy to do. But we will keep plugging away. I keep plugging away and bugging people. (laughs) And I slowly but surely get some traction by bugging people. I need other people to help bug those same people. You know, we need local communities to call their congressmen and their senators and talk about the Stafford Act. Because a lot of those expenses fall on the states and the local governments then. Yeah. Because they don't reach the threshold of a national disaster. They don't get money from FEMA. But it is all part and parcel of the original disaster. So how many years or events would you have to push 
out to make that a viable? I would say if they at least did floods in the first three years as tied to the original disaster, that would help immeasurably. You've been incredibly gracious with your time. (laughs) Any last thoughts? My one last thought is that we need to understand that we are going to just have more of this in the future. It's not going away. It's not going to get better. We are going to have bigger, worse fires across more landscapes that we didn't anticipate it. And I think when I look at last year's East Troublesome fire that burned up over the Continental Divide, even 10 years ago, any of us in this universe of fire would have said, oh, no, it won't burn above tree line. Well, guess what? It will burn above tree line. <laughs> so rather than planning on what's the burn probability where we do treatments, we need to start thinking in terms of the values we're trying to protect, the water supply, the power and transportation infrastructure, the woolly homes and businesses. The good news is this year, Congress has appropriated a significant increase in funding, and most states in the West, anyway, are increasing their funding for this type of work. Now we have to get to the point that the Forest Service can rehire. The Forest Service got $3 billion, and that sounds like a lot. But, you know, when you look at the millions of acres that need treatment across the West, that's kind of a drop in the bucket. It really is. And you look at from top to bottom, the workforce capacity issues around doing the environmental assessments you need to do to approve projects from the federal level, the contracting aspects of that work, and then the the people on the ground that are actually Mm -hmm. going to execute that work and the infrastructure that's needed to support them. Right. From top to bottom, there is an enormous We have a dearth of workforce. And for COCA, the last few years, we create a grant program for local watershed groups, wildfire councils, forest collaboratives around the West geared toward building their capacity. And we went with the argument that, like, okay, if you only fund grants for acres treated, It takes planning. It takes work to get acres ready to go. It takes bodies to do that work. It takes people with skills to do that work. And so if that, if you only fund acres, you're not going to get as many acres as if you fund building the capacity and the knowledge and the worker base who can then go out and get projects done. They get a mitigation mentor. They get mitigation training so they know how to mitigate. They know the social science side of things to deal with people, to how do you talk about the issues with the public. And that's all part of it because that's part of what we need. And we need staff at the local district level and state and federal forest service offices. We need people on the ground. We need slayers. We need guys who can drive logging trucks. Our friend in the Timber Industry Association, says that the average age of a truck driver right now is 62 for a logging truck driver. (laughs) Good grief, you know. So we need people in the whole spectrum on the private side and the public side. And hopefully the $3 that was appropriated, it's a good drop in the bucket. Hopefully 
there'll be more good drops in the bucket <laughs> we can get more of this done because otherwise we are going to spend it all on suppression and yeah. we're not going to suppress our way out of the wildfire crisis that is um, clearly where we're headed without a yeah. big change in strategy well this has been a really interesting discussion and hopefully it's been helpful to some of the listeners, I learned new things talking to you, Carol, and I usually do anytime we are able to chat. So thank you so much for your time today. And thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it, Troy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Out West, presented by the Western Governors Association. To learn more about our ongoing work on natural resources management, please visit westgov.org. And be sure to join us next time as we continue to discuss critical issues facing the Western United States. Finally, WGA would like to thank Carol Acarius for sharing her expertise on forest restoration, as well as Working Lands, Working Communities Initiative sponsors, Deloitte, Ann Walker Consulting, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Happy trails, everyone.